you would, to Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to zoom in on just part of one verse today. Uh, I'm going to read to you both Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, as well as Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, and uh, those uh, page numbers on the chair Bibles are on the screen behind me. I'm going to, however, back up. I'm going to read verse 8 of Colossians chapter 2, and then I'm going to move down to verse 16. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And Ephesians chapter Four, just a couple pages back, starting in verse 15 and reading verse 16. Rather, well, no, let's go back. I'm going to go back to verse 11. And he, that is Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we need your help today. We need your spirit to illuminate your word for us, to show us the truthfulness of it. May we see Christ clearly through it, but may we also see how you have made the body to build itself up in love. Lord, may we be a church that is marked by its unity. Uh, May may we have deep affection for one another. Uh, May we give great deference to one another. Uh, May in matters that are not central to the gospel, may may we be willing to, uh, to have disagreement and still have fellowship. May we be willing to to be unified in a way that the gospel can only unify. And Lord, may the world see in us a unity that is wrought by what Jesus has done for us that cannot compare to anything that it sees. Where we love each other deeply across ethnic lines, economic lines, age lines. Where where we have a, a great understanding of our need for each other. That with all the saints here at Trinity, we might comprehend what is the height and depth and breadth of the love that you have for us in Christ. So we ask that you would make us a unified body. 
Lord, we pray for the Christian Aid Center this morning. We thank you for the success of the food drive. We pray with them that you would give renewed excitement uh, for the work that the staff does there. We pray for the kitchen manager in the women's center who lost her sister and the grief that she is going through. Lord, would you comfort her with your spirit and with your people? May you show her that you are who you tell us in 2 Corinthians, that you are the God of all comfort who comforts us so that we may comfort others. And may she receive that comfort both from you and uh, through others. Lord, we pray for the ladies there who are caring for children in, in that environment. We pray that you would give great uh, grace uh, to those children and in those circumstances. Lord, may the gospel be clear. Would you draw these women to yourself? Lord, let the word sound forth from us today in all that we do. And would you be glorified? Give us soft hearts to receive your word today and to be obedient to it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to an individual verse of Scripture, it's always difficult to keep it in its context. And uh, an opportunity presented itself to, that was perfect for the context that we see. Last week, uh, I was at the Bible study that I lead on Monday mornings at the Christian Aid Center. And after the Bible study, one of the guys comes up to me and he says, I've got a video that I want you to see. It, it perfectly pictures me. I was like, okay. It was all of about maybe 10 seconds. Uh, the video shows this dry ground and there's a pretty significant crack in the ground and stuck in this crack, maybe you've seen it, is a sheep. I mean, he is rear end up, head down, stuck. And this person with the camera, or phone, I'm sure, walks up behind the sheep, grabs it by its back legs, pulls it out of the crack, it goes bounding off in about two big jumps, takes this gigantic leap, and goes head down, boop, right in the crack. He says, this is me. <laughs> I was like, holy smokes, that's me too. We are prone when Christ has come along and removed us from, from the darkness and the stuckness of our own way of thinking to jump right back in. Our hearts are prone to wander. Our, our intellect is deficient. And we, as we're told in 1 Corinthians, need the mind of Christ. And so Paul, both here in Colossians and in Ephesians chapter 4, these are parallel books, by the way, very, very similar, written to similar regions and cultures at a similar time in Paul's life. He calls us to see to it that no one takes us captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He does not tell us that because it's hard for us. He tells us that because it's easy. It's easy to, to captivate us with philosophy and with empty deceit and with uh, human tradition, to be blown around by every wind of doctrine. And so what we saw last week about not letting anyone pass judgment on us and not letting anyone disqualify us was for the purpose of keeping us out of trouble, out of spiritual shipwreck. The context here, as we zoom in very close on a portion of verse 19, is the same. I did a search this week on christianbook.com, which is Christian Book Distributor's website, uh, and I just typed in church growth. 
Now, I'm sure there's some duplication there, and I'm sure not every single book that was listed was specifically about church growth. But that search on christianbook.com yielded 5,374 results. Ads on Facebook abound for church playbooks. Do this to double your attendance by Sunday. If you just do this, you can grow your church. And if you have a believable strategy for church growth, I believe you can make significant money selling it to churches. There's something really wonderful about this, isn't there? I mean, isn't it, isn't it wonderful that there is a market to pastors and churches that desire for the church to grow? that care about the lost being saved, that care about the health of their local bodies. And it's not a criticism in any way that these books are out there. It's wonderful. But there's, there's a measure that we must apply to them as we consider whether or not they are worth our consideration. Because the truth of the matter is, it is not hard to fill a church. Simply tell people what they want to hear, and you will fill a church. Seek to entertain, and you will fill a church. But we must not forget that after Jesus put on a show, after he fed thousands of people, and they were following him to see his miracles, and they demanded more, and he preached the truth, he went from thousands to just a few. And he looked at the disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And they said, where else will we go? Who, who else has the words of eternal life? It's not hard to grow a church. But I, I don't think church growth is necessarily and inherently our first goal. Now, I'll also ask the question, what comes to mind when you think of church growth? Do you think in terms of adding people? Or do you think in terms of maturity? I don't, I don't know that we can separate those. Because mature sheep reproduce. And if you have people who do not spiritually reproduce themselves into the life of others, it is a sure sign that they're not mature. We can kid ourselves all we want into believing that we're spiritually mature. But if we're not investing in the evangelism of others and the growth of other believers, we're, we're kidding ourselves. And so both of those things must be in our mind as we think about how to grow the church. Some of you might think, uh, but Logan, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he was all things to all people that by all means he might win some. Shouldn't we be willing to do all things to win some? Whatever it takes, no matter how extreme? Well, I would say yes to that, so long as we understand the context of Paul when he makes that. When Paul makes the statement, I do all things for all people, that by all means I might win some, he was talking about restraining his own personal desires. The whole context of 1 Corinthians 9 is that Paul has liberty in Christ. We have been set free. 
But Paul was willing to restrain whatever freedoms God had given him in Christ for the sake of not giving an offense to the gospel. And so the context of 1 Corinthians 9 isn't that the church should do all things, whatever it takes to sacrifice anything and do anything to win people. The statement is that we are willing to restrain our liberty for the purpose of not offending. Paul says if meat sacrificed in the market, or meat sacrificed to an idol is sold in a meat market and offends, offends somebody to eat, I won't eat it. Whatever the Christian liberty was, whether it was with Jews not eating pork, he was willing to restrain his liberty. What, what liberties are we willing to restrain? Because in, in 1 Corinthians 9 and in Romans, a very parallel passage, Jesus, or Paul talks, Jesus through Paul really, talks about how in Christ we have great liberty. But, and Paul always presents the mature believer as the one having more liberty, not the one having less. The one who lives by more rules, more boundaries, more limitations is always presented to us as the less mature. But then, in contrast to that, the one who always insists on his own liberties at the expense of others is also presented as less mature. I might have the liberty and the freedom and the lack of fear to not wear a mask. But what if not wearing a mask offends somebody? Would I curtail my own personal liberties? for the sake of the care of someone else? I digress, but the reality is that Paul is not saying we should do anything with no limitations. He's saying we should be willing to constrain ourselves in any way for the good of others, to give up any liberty, to forsake any freedom that we might win some. He also said in 1 Corinthians 4, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, in other words, of most importance, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. What God demands of us is faithful. We have to be careful with that. Faithful and old-fashioned are not the same. You can be faithful and creative. You can be old-fashioned and faithless. But faithful is sticking to God's plan. And so the question before us is this. How does a church grow faithfully according to God's plan? And that's what we're going to see in the text this morning. But in order to help us understand where this text is taking us and what it means, I want us to talk first about where babies come from. Yes, you heard that right, where babies come from. Don't, don't rush your kids out. When you are ready to have a baby, you go down to the Ikea baby store and you pick a baby model. Of course, the name of the baby you cannot pronounce. Some of the letters you probably can't even recognize. You put in your order, and you get a box full of baby parts. And you go home, and you get the manual out that's also in a language you cannot read, and you assemble your IKEA baby. 
And then you set it in the corner of the house, and it just does its own thing from there. Grows up on its own, takes care of itself, feeds itself, nourishes itself. Of course, this is ridiculous. Babies don't come in parts. They come wonderfully as one body made up of many parts, connected, joined, and held together. And once you have it, you don't just let it loose and it takes care of itself. No, you have to nurture it. You have to nourish it. You have to care for it. It needs nourishment from mom. It needs instruction and discipline and encouragement from mom and dad. But when you put the things into it that it needs, when you care for that baby according to God's design, it grows itself. It is dependent upon things outside of it for growth, but it grows on its own. You don't, you don't dial in how much it grows and when and how. It just does that on its own. And these two texts that we see today, they give us the same idea about the church. Notice the, the, the language here, verse 19. Holding fast to the head, that is, as the church holds fast to Christ, from whom the whole body... And then we get this description of the body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, and now we get to the verb, grows. The body grows with a growth that is from God. Like a baby, the church has built into it what is necessary for it to grow. We have, in part, what we need as a church to grow, not only in terms of maturity, but in terms of spreading the gospel. But like a baby, we need outside input as well. Notice that, that this growth comes when we cling to the head, that this growth is, in, is first in verse 19, it is from whom, that whom is a relative pronoun referring back to head, and the head in that context is Christ. And so the body grows from whom? It grows from Christ, but it grows from Christ with a growth that is from God. We see this as well in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, I would keep a finger in both because we're going to turn back and forth pretty regularly. Paul, uh, he even elaborates on this here in verse 16. From whom, there's the exact same statement. Uh, if, if we go back, we even see uh, growing up. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, it was the same reference we had in, in Colossians, into Christ, from whom, excuse me, from whom the whole body, and then we get this big long description, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, now we get to the main verb, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. If we take the subject and the main verb and the direct object, we get this. The body makes grow the body, so that it builds itself up in love. There's something inherently in the church that causes itself to grow. 
And yet it grows from whom, that is Christ, with a growth that is from God. I sat around thinking, how in the world can I illustrate this? And I thought about a car that, that has everything it needs. You don't, go to the car par- you don't go to the car dealer and buy a box of parts and assemble your car. You, you buy a whole car and it contains everything in it that it needs to go. Except it doesn't go without gas. It needs power from outside of itself. And you get that gas from a gas station. So a car goes with gas from a gas station. Or my lawn, which I mowed this weekend, it grows on its own. But it needs some things uh, to be able to do so. It needs water. And this week, my lawn received fertilizer. And so it receives outside input, water and fertilizer, and it begins to grow itself. And so in that sense, my my grass grows with a growth from water and fertilizer that you get from an ogis. It's just the way it works, right? It needs outside input. The, The body makes the body grow, but it does so from Christ with a growth that is from God. Hopefully this makes sense. I don't know. (laughs) I'm just confusing myself. No, not really. But you see what I'm saying? There's a mechanism built in to the church that the church grows itself. And so today, I want us to see the source of church growth. That's like mom and dad giving input into the nourishment of a child. And then I want us to see the strategy for growth, what it is that we're to do. So number one on your outline there, the source of church growth. And I've pretty much already covered this, and so we're not going to elaborate. But the church grows from God the Son and God the Father. There should be, there we go. Uh, Both of these are there. Notice again in Colossians 2.19 that the church grows from whom? And with a growth that is from God. And we see the same thing in Ephesians 4.15. This harkens us back to Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And right there in that section, Matthew 16 through 18, is Jesus' first instructions to the church. It's the first time the word church even shows up in Scripture. And and so Jesus tells the disciples, you know, they're they're at Caesarea Philippi. There's all these gods in, in, it's a, a pantheon of pagan worship. And Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're you're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You are the son of God. And, And Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, changing his name. You are Peter. That word means pebble. And on this rock... You are Petros, pebble, and on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. And so he's, he's not, as the Catholics say, calling Peter the rock of the church. No, what he's saying is, you little pebble just made a confession that is the bedrock of what I will build my church on. That the church is built on those who, like Peter, profess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he says, I will build my church. Not you will build my church. 
I will build my church. My church will grow. I will build something into it so that it will grow itself up. But that growth is from whom with the growth that is from God. And so make no mistake, it is Jesus who grows his church. He is the one who loved us. He is the one who gave himself up for us. He is the one who died in our place. He is the one who lives eternally and reigns at the right hand of the Father. And it is him who we must trust for salvation. He builds his church. He builds his church, not, not in it as an organization, not as a 501c3, not as a building, but as a people, as a people who, like Peter, confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so the church is not an organization. The church is a living organism made up of parts that desperately need each other. And it grows with a growth from, uh, by Christ that is from God. The body grows itself by God's design as Christ gives it everything that it needs. And we grow with a growth that is from God. But he has called us to function in a way that facilitates this growth. And so what I want to see now is the strategy. How is it that the church grows itself. And before we look at these three points under the biblical strategy for church growth, I want us to understand that scripture draws out uh, two implications under each of these. There is always a we implication and a me implication. There is always an implication for how the church relates to each other, but then there's also an implication for how I personally relate to the church. And so the first strategy for church growth is that we speak truthfully. We speak truthfully. Now, by truthfully, I don't just mean uh, we say what is true. That is part of it. In Ephesians 4.15 here, when Paul says, speaking the truth in love, it's actually a very difficult uh, uh, set of words in Greek to, to translate exactly in a way that makes sense in English. In Greek, it literally says, truthing. That's about it. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. Um, it, it reads like this in the Greek. Rather, rather than being taken captive by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather, truthing in love, we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. It's not just that we speak honestly with one another. That is part of what's baked into the cake of this text. But it's also that we speak God's truth to one another. And there are both public and personal implications for that. Ephesians 4.15 is clear that, that we grow. Uh, the context is gifts given to the church by God. And I think chronologically, Paul says, first we were given apostles, then prophets, those are writers of scripture who were not apostles, then evangelists who went out and the church grew, and now pastor teachers. That's my role. And what do uh, apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers do? 
They truth in love. They speak the truth in love. And so publicly, as we relate to each other, we commit ourselves to the public proclamation of God's word. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2 is very clear. As Paul charges Timothy, a pastor, the end of that chronological list, he says, I charge you before God and the angels to preach the word. All of the characteristics of an elder given in Scripture are, are, are character traits, with the exception of one. That it, the only skill listed for an elder is that he is able to teach. A, a, an elder who does not teach somewhere, that doesn't necessarily have to be preaching, is not an elder. It is what the elders do. It is by God's design that we preach. And the content of our message is given to us. It is not preach the culture. It is not preach yourselves. Paul very clearly said we do not preach ourselves. It is not exegete movies. It is preach the word. The content of the message is given. And so publicly, we speak truthfully. It is the single and solitary non-negotiable. I've been wondering about this this week. When a church service runs long, why is the first thing we criticize the length of the sermon? It should be the last thing we criticize. Not because that's my role, but because it is what is commanded of us. We are commanded to sing. We are commanded to pray. We are commanded to give. We are commanded to fellowship. But only are we commanded to preach the word in season and out of season. We, we speak truthfully. But this is not just public implications. It is, it is personal implications as well. Uh, we, we not only speak the word publicly, but we speak the word relationally. There is most definitely in Ephesians 4.15, in this idea of truthing to one another in love, more than just preaching. Whether it's in a growth group, or, or whether it's in an adult Bible class, or whether it's in our homes, or getting coffee, or over a meal, we need more than just preaching we need to speak the truth to one another uh, in, in relationships. We had, we had our, uh, the last growth group, our growth group met for the last time that we will be at. Uh, we're gonna have one more uh, barbecue meeting, but I think we're gonna be gone this last week. And all we did was go around and just ask the question, what are you reading right now in scripture? And, and there was all kinds of various answers. And what, what unfolded was several people talking about things that are going on in their life, things that they're praying for. And, and time and time again, our growth group responded with encouragement, with scripture, truthing to one another in love. The love in the room was palpable as people cared for one another. But as they also spoke the truth of God's word to one another, we did not have a sermon and the growth group did not do what a sermon can do. It did what a sermon cannot do. It was It was personal and tangible, and it was important, and it was soul care. And so we speak the truth not only publicly as we preach the word, but we speak the truth to one another. What this requires of each and every one of us is that we know the word. Notice that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, 
that, that the body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. When, when each part of the church is speaking the truth of God in love to one another in various facets and areas and aspects of life, the church grows. You could see a tremendous amount of growth even in growth group just in this one evening. It was, it was really encouraging. So we speak the truth. We speak the truth in church services and we speak to the truth into each other's lives as the church engages with one another throughout the week. We also, this is implied in the first one I think, we connect relationally. We connect relationally. And again, this has both a, a corporate aspect and an individual aspect. We see the we and the me implications. Notice in Colossians 2.19 that the body grows when it is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments. And that it grows when it is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped in Ephesians 4.15. Let me see if I can try and make sense of this analogy. A ligament mentioned in Colossians 2 or a part in Ephesians 4 is a part of a joint. And the ligament only makes sense as a functional part of the body when it is part of a joint. But the joint, as referenced in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 2 which inherently has some degree of connectedness. A, a, a disconnected joint does not function well. Uh, Anthony Kaufman, who is not here with us uh, today, found out how quickly a joint can fail to work when a ligament was torn off of the bone in his arm. That joint fails to work. But that ligament, that part, only makes sense in the context of a joint. And for a joint to function, it needs all of its parts present, contributing, and, and functioning properly. But then, there, there's not, you're not just one joint. Your body is not consistent of just one knee. The, the joint only makes sense in part of the body. And, and all three of these are represented in both of these passages, that the church is a body, that the body is joined to one another, and that the joints function properly when each part is functioning properly. And a body only makes sense in terms of having parts, uh, as in joints, and joints only make sense in terms of its parts. And so we see that, that it is not simply enough to say, well, I'm a part of the body, but I'm disconnected. It, it, the whole analogy breaks down. Paul does not talk about the church in terms of uh, pieces scattered abroad. He talks about a body with functioning parts that are connected to one another, and every part has a specific function. A joint only makes sense in the context of a body. Hebrews 10.25 makes this clear as, as one of many passages in Scripture that we as a body are not to neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Some people have a habit of neglecting the fellowship of the church. And we're expressly told in Hebrews 10 that we are not to do that. We are not to neglect meeting together. By the way, the word meeting together there is a strengthened form of the word synagogue. It's episunagoge. 
Now, many of us could say, well, there are various forms of meetings. It could be in a house. It could be over coffee. I went to coffee with somebody this week, and, and I'm not neglecting meeting together. When was the last time any of us thought of a coffee meeting in the same terms of a synagogue? Epi is, is, is a strengthened form of that. Don't, don't neglect the meeting of the body, the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is telling us here is that as we see what's going on in the world around us, as our lives and our world get busier and busier, as things get crazier and we become more and more pressed, we have more need to not neglect the gathering, not less. That every day we move closer to the return of Christ is a, is a day that all the more we need to not neglect to one, an, one another as we see the day of the Lord drawing near. We must not uh, neglect the assembling of ourselves together. And interestingly, most of the time when we hear this verse, it goes like this. You should not neglect the, the assembling of yourselves together because you need the church. You, you need to be present. It's good for you. But that's not at all the concern of the author of Hebrews. Look at what he says. He says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Uh, the, the author of Hebrews is not worried primarily about what we receive from the church, but what we give to it. There's been a massive shift in our culture from a, a, a climate that once said and cheered on statements like, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, to today where we care little about what we can do for our country and very much about how much our country can deposit in our checking accounts. We, we are concerned primarily with what, what we get and not what we give. We approach church services like consumers. I, I come in, I sit, I receive the meal offered to me, and I leave. And if it was good enough, I'll pay for it. If it was not, next time I'll go to another restaurant. And I'll find what I, I do, what, what does suit my fancy. What does tickle my ears. What does give me what I want. But that's not the primary concern. The primary concern is how you can encourage one another. You can't walk in late and leave immediately and be an encouragement to one another. That takes connectedness. That takes being joined together. That, that could take the form of a growth group or a cup of coffee or an adult Bible class or a hundred other forms. But the primary concern when you walked into this building today should have been, how can I be of spiritual benefit to somebody else? The immediate response is often, well, I have spiritual needs too. But guess what? Who would leave needy if every one of us came in with that perspective? And what if we came in the perspective of not just that we're willing to give, but that we're also willing to receive? Jesus was willing to have his feet washed and to wash the disciples' feet. 
Sometimes selfishness says, I just need to get. Sometimes pride says, I cannot receive. And both of those have to be laid down. Sometimes we serve the body by being served. As Jesus was willing to allow his feet to be washed. And sometimes we take off our outer garments and we wash others' feet. There's got to be this balance where we receive from others and where we give to others. And so we, we have to be connected to one another. We, we have to have relationships with, with people. You, you can exist as a body part in a lab somewhere, but you can only be a body when all of the parts are connected and functioning. Right? Are you concerned for what your presence means to others? Or are you only concerned with what you get out of a church service? Do you primarily view the church as an organization or as an organism? And lastly, flowing much out of the last one, we serve humbly. We serve humbly. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. I've kind of already touched on this, and so we're going to move uh, very quickly. But that the body grows when it is joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, and also when each part is working properly. We serve humbly for others' good, but we also serve humbly for our good. This is one we often get backwards to, because oftentimes we think that service is primarily for the good of other people, and service is for the good of other people, and we should not neglect that. It, we do serve for others' good, but we also serve for our good as well. Galatians 5.13, also talking about the freedom that we have in Christ, Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. It's inherent to us, right? Grace is easily taken advantage of. And Paul says, you've got freedom, and God's given you grace, but don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. But, that's a really important word, because it gives us the contrast don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Service is not only good for others. Service is how we combat our own flesh. If you saw the video I published a couple of weeks ago, it has been a delight to my soul and many others to see the church gather once again. But we are really struggling to figure out how to keep functioning under the expectations that the church has of how to function without people returning to serving. People who once served are not. And, and, and people who once attended are not. People who were once relationally connected inside and outside the church are not. We can't just show up on Sundays and leave. We have to serve. If you're too busy to attend and, and too busy to serve, I'd be willing to bet money that if we were to look at the priorities of your life, they don't align with God's. Because we are not to neglect, neglect the assembling of ourselves together. But we are to show up ready to serve and be served, ready to hear the word and speak the word, ready to connect and function and serve and meet needs. One of the ways that would be a tremendous opportunity to serve 
is if, if we could have, uh, we, we moved Sunday school to second hour so that we could include Spanish language services, but what's hobbled us is, is uh, we, don't, we don't have anywhere for younger kids to be during first service. And so families with young kids really have a, a struggle to, to serve and to be served. We want our kids present in church services. But sometimes uh, a nursery for younger kids is, is really helpful so that a, a, a young couple can attend an adult Bible class or serve uh, elsewhere. We need to serve. The bottom line here is that when we are connected, when we are relational, when we humbly serve one another, when we speak the truth to one another, that is what's built in to us as a church that makes the body grow. It's from Christ with a growth that is from God, but all of that is built into us. It's how a church grows uh, in maturity. It's how a church grows in, uh, in terms of evangelism and outreach as we encourage each other to that as well. The body makes the body grow by God's design and grace. He grows the church when we are committed to the ministry of the word, when we are committed to corporate uh, worship, when we are committed to relationships, and when we're committed to service. Let's be that kind of church. But in order to be that kind of body, you've got to be that kind of body part. That's how God has designed us. Now, in all fairness, because of my own comments today, and with what I told the team that plans today's service, the length of today's service is totally my fault. This took me way longer than I said it would. But I think it matters for us. Let's be that kind of church. I, I, I hope you understand that, that I don't mean this in any way as a criticism. And my great fear today is that my tone and demeanor and the text is going to be taken as a criticism. For the record, I'm just preaching the next verse. But I think there's incredible implications for us as to how we function as a church as we come out of COVID. This is not about COVID. It's really not. This is how a church functions and grows. It's what gives us life and joy. And we've got to line ourselves up with, with God's priorities here. Um, Turn with me, if you would, now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And as we think about being a joined and connected body, it is fitting that we uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. I hope you got one of these as you came in. If you did not, I hope there are people out there who hear me say that we can use some brought in. But if you need some uh, communion elements, uh, 